0: The first six months was pretty legit, like nothing really happened. But you know, a private equity firm is going to make some moves, and eventually they said uh, that they were shutting down offices globally in all kinds of places, and sort of just bringing people uh, into certain areas and dismissing certain products and all kinds of stuff. So we, I got a call one morning from a, from the EVP from my boss, and he says, uh, "Ian, we're we're shutting down
1: the Montreal office." Welcome to Montreal startups a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to an entrepreneur with over 20 years' experience in Montreal and Silicon Valley, an angel investor to early-stage startups, and the founder and CEO of Breathe Life, Ian Jeffrey. Take a scroll down Ian Jeffrey's LinkedIn profile and it feels like an endless list of impressive accomplishments. His first major startup, which you'll hear about in more detail, was based out of San Francisco and acquired by Shutterfly. After returning to Montreal, he was propelled into the world of startups, becoming a partner at Real Ventures, co-founding Founder Fuel, started in Montreal in tech, and even angel invested in various local startups. Now, I won't spoil the direction his career took, But I want to emphasize what stands out most from our conversation with Ian, is how deeply he cares about his colleagues and employees. Startup mentality is often focused on raising venture financing and maximizing investor returns at the expense of employees. Young, intelligent, hardworking individuals are sold the dream of working at a startup where they can shape the future or change the world and get rich while doing it. The offer is usually fractional, high-risk stock options prone to dilution that are supposed to one day be worth millions. But the reality is, these startup soldiers are expected to work grueling long hours for below-market pay, they face lofty expectations and unattainable targets with minimal training or career development, have no job security, and sacrifice health benefits and retirement perks in exchange for ping-pong tables, beer on tap, and noisy open office spaces. Take Reid Hoffman, for example. The founder of LinkedIn is well-recognized across the global startup community and often touted as a pioneer and hero. But what most don't know is Hoffman has a track record for denouncing corporate loyalty to workers. His role as an investor and board member in his friend's well-known gaming company, Zynga, isn't so noble either. As the company was getting ready to go public in 2012, Hoffman and CEO Mark Pincus started quietly forcing employees to give back stock options that were initially used to complement low salaries. If employees didn't comply, they would fire them, essentially giving them two options, lose a little or lose a lot. To take it a step further, Zynga workers and management were bound by a lockup agreement, so they couldn't sell shares for six months after the IPO. But conveniently enough, after the IPO, Pincus and Hoffman rejiggered the lockup agreement, allowing themselves to jump the line and sell shares before employees. Zynga shares collapsed, Hoffman and Pincus added billions to their net worth and screwed over everyone else. Now don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great startups out there building great companies and offering great places to work. And Ian Jeffrey and Breathe Life is one of them. Their company culture is palpable, in fact their values are one of the first things you see on the walls when you walk into their office. They discourage 80-hour work weeks and promote work-life balance, build an interactive and healthy work environment, and even have a full-time in-house culture manager. I guess I speak for a lot of people when I say we're thankful Ian didn't listen to his father when he was young.
0: My father was uh, in insurance, and I spent uh, my entire childhood looking at him go to, to work in a suit and tie, and I always said I would never work in insurance, and here I am. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because my father also always told me never to start a business, that it was way too much work and too hard and all these things. And, and I've, you know, started my first business when, when I was 12. Wow. What was that business? Uh, it was a landscaping business. So okay. classic type of uh, first time venture type of thing. But um, specifically, it's a, it's a bit of a funny story, but I wanted uh, this. This is back when CDs were just starting to, to be a thing and I wanted a stereo system. I was always big into music, and I wanted a CD player, and it was really expensive at the time, as you can imagine. And my parents didn't want to buy it, so I said, "Well, I'm going to go make money, and I'm going to, I'm going to buy, buy it yourself. on my own." Yeah. Right. So I, I I took my father's lawnmower, which, by the way, fun, a bit of a funny story, but uh, my father was really really proud about his grass, right? Like he was a nut about about the grass. He's people a grass would, guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. people would would walk up to our house and like like touch it because it was so thick. So I took the, my father's lawnmower, which I wasn't allowed to cut the grass at home, but I went and I knocked on people's doors and I said, I live at Soissante d'Avignon, you want me to take care of your grass? And everyone was like, yeah, yeah do it, because my he father's saw grass was yeah. so beautiful. So I started doing that, and, I, and that and lasted many, many years, actually. So I did that. All my friends were you know, still like starting to work at McDonald's and stuff like that. I never did any of that.
1: Just all landscaping. Yep, for, for a long time. For the summers, right?
0: Yeah, and then that led to painting in houses like I just basically my entire life have created picking up some side jobs
1: and and stuff like that at that point when you're doing your landscaping your your painting your little little hustles here and there did you know okay I love this entrepreneurship or self-control that I have of making my own money and when I'm older is it at that point that you realize I'm going to be an entrepreneur
0: no not at all actually I always imagined myself joining a big company and uh and sort of going up the ranks and uh when I when I finished university, I uh, I traveled for a while. I went to Whistler for uh, to do the ski bum thing. lived there for for a year with my girlfriend. And when I came back, I started working for Cassette Communications, which was uh, at the time the largest agency in Canada. It's still one of the big ones, but it was the biggest at the time. And my goal was like to start at the bottom of the ladder and just climb up. And uh, it's interesting because I entered that company, but um, I ended up being partnered with one guy called Rob Rossi um, who was a bit older than me and a bit of a mentor as well. And uh, the two of us had our own unit. And so even within this big company, what we were doing was very, very
1: entrepreneurial. It was a startup within a big company yep, almost. Exactly.
0: Right? And it wasn't intended to be that way, but it just it happened that way.
1: What, what was that project or what was your role at Cassette at the time? So the,
0: the project we were working on was called Nomad, and it was basically uh, trying to reinvent the way... Uh, uh, we agencies or brands would talk to the younger generation of consumers. This is when, like TV, was still the big thing, and that was a way to reach most of the audience. But the younger generation, which I was in that time, was like already on on the web and like not watching TV and doing all these different things. So it was like, how do we reach these these audiences? So we were doing some pretty crazy stuff. Um, we had this giant Winnebago about forty foot long. Uh, and we would go out into the market. So if, if Molson X was one of our clients, they wanted to talk to beer drinkers, we would take the Winnebago, you know, on a Friday night at 11 p.m. or midnight and go to the bars with the Winnebago. And we'd go into the bar and we'd find, like, the influential people in the bar and bring them into the Winnebago and, and talk to them and learn about, you know, you know what they do, how, what listen, what music they listen to, just really understand that consumer. So then we can build campaigns Oh, okay, to reach so that the was audience. a market
1: research type yeah. thing rather than an actual marketing strategy. Well, it led to the strategy. It led to the marketing, to the marketing yeah. strategy.
0: But this at the like today that type of stuff is pretty, you know, obvious. But back then, no one was doing any anything like that. Right. But it's an important part of the story because I was always thinking about how do we reach new consumers, and eventually I heard about this thing called uh, Facebook that was starting to pop up in the U.S. And, and and then eventually that led to, to this thing called YouTube. And so I remember going up in front of the uh, they had these things at the agency called uh, les Mides de la pub. About 500 people in the room, and I went up there as uh, you know early in my 20s because I was invited to, to give a talk uh, because of the things we were doing. And I told them that you know I thought these these things called Facebook and, and YouTube would change the way we would do communication and marketing forever. Right? And I remember the old, the, old, the old guard with the gray hair going like, "What do you know, young, young kid,? right? But this is a really important part of my journey because at the, right about the same time, I had a buddy who was uh, in Japan uh, running an R&D studio and design studio for, for Sony. And this is the beginning of cameras on phones. And he came up with this idea to build uh, a social network uh, focused around picture and video sharing uh, through the work that he was doing with Sony. And Sony didn't want to do it. And so he says, well, I'm going to I'm gonna leave and I'm going to launch this business. And then he called me up and he's like, uh, I want to launch this thing and I want to do it with you. Would you meet me in the valley? So after sort of a lot of thinking about it, picked up. Which uh,
1: required you to leave your job at Cassette at the time. Yeah,
0: leave my job at, at Cassette, leave my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, basically leave everything behind. Uh, but I did it, and in 2006, we launched uh, a product called Radar, which was the very first picture and video sharing app uh, on the on the planet, way before Instagram. You know, at the time, the camera phones, we call them camera phones, they had, like, VGA, VGA cameras. There wasn't even one pixel camera, so it was a very different time. There was no such thing as cloud hosting and, and you know, the only way to get distribution was through a deal with a with a T-Mobile or AT&T or any of these big guys it was a very very difficult time to do something in mobile but we had the right vision um, the exact right vision but the wrong timing
1: right was that vision to build a startup around this and yeah. raise venture funding and 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 build yeah, this yeah. into
0: a company or yeah, so we we raised in total thirteen million dollars. Okay, uh, that's a lot of money, especially back then. Back then, yeah. Uh, the first, you know, including investors like Reed Hoffman was our one of our angel investors. Uh, the, our first, um, our first, a, the A round was led by uh, uh, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote the, f- the the famous Crossing the Chasm book, and our second round was led by Tim Draper, who was like the guy who coined viral marketing. Like we were really really well surrounded by top-notch VCS well backed yeah. well backed and because we had the right vision right but we went around the world in 2006 and seven saying that one day we'd take picture of our food when we're eating it and share it with our friends through our phone and people would have conversations around that and people thought we were crazy right but you you pinpointed the exact yeah. future
1: of, of, of digital and social sharing yeah so it was a time. really
0: really amazing adventure Uh it ended up in a in a in a soft landing that I would I would call it's not a great exit at all, but into Shutterfly in the middle of the 2008 crisis. Okay. So you know that that time kind of like
1: were, a forced exit.
0: Yeah, we were shopping our C round, right? right. Uh, and then the economy just collapsed. All the VCs started hiding, and we were like, "Wow, like we, we're in trouble. We have six months runway, but we're not going to get money." Mm-hmm. So we actually um, we actually went back to the drawing board. Uh, by this time, we already had a million and a half users on mobile. That was huge back then. But we're like, what can we do with this technology today that will get us to get acquired? And we came up with this idea um, of of using all the pictures and 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 all the API accesses that we had, because back then most of the time API was like you need to have a deal with a company to do that. Right. But we had deals with with uh, Facebook, with Flickr, with Shutterfly. We had and we had our our own photos. So we launched a new product um, called Wink, And this product was uh, basically a an app to create photo strips like you get in the mall, right? right? But using pictures uh, wherever you store them, right? Those were the big places to store pictures at the time. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine going to a barbecue with some friends, taking a few pictures, and then from your app, launching the app and having a a, a template photo strip, put a few pictures in there, edit them and everything and send them to your friend by text, right? And then and then your friend would enter the address, like the physical mailing address, right. and the next day he would get it in the mail. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, so it was a really interesting online And that's like off- a full pivot. Yeah. Right. yeah, it had nothing to do with what we were doing except right. that it had to do with pictures, right. it had to do with uh, leveraging technology that we had. Um, but it was really interesting to sort of bridge the offline, online experience in that way and so we started working on that and shutterfly acquired us for okay. for that
1: which was kind of the the plan when you decided yeah. to come up with this pivot you knew that there would be some sort of interest <clears throat> from a bigger player there
0: yeah we had we were 30 people on the team we're like we can't just shut down right. and put these 30 people on the street in the middle of the worst crisis ever
1: right. we got to find a way to to keep to keep jobs right and so we did that that's that's i mean that's pretty incredible to <laughs> to 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 re- I mean, not many people build a business that way, right? right? At that point, but I mean, you had the right intention, the right idea, and and you accomplished it. So it was a success. to Yeah, a in that extent. sense, yeah, yeah. Right. It was
0: not uh, not a great financial success, right? Uh, although you know everyone made a bit of money, but it wasn't about you know becoming uh, millionaires at mm-hmm. all, but. Um, but all in all, a great story, right for everyone.
1: So, how much time did you spend in total in the Valley and at Radar and through that whole experience? I was there from two thousand six to two thousand ten.
0: Two thousand ten. So, post acquisition, I was at Shutterfly almost a year and a about a year
1: and a half. I was gonna say almost two years, but about a year and a half. Who was? They were also in the Valley. Yep. Right. Yeah. So you stayed there for more time. You kept your relationship with your girlfriend.
0: Well, she she moved she moved over uh, a year after I was there. Okay. So the first year it was like uh, this is a new business, it's pretty insecure. We had two properties here. We didn't want to sell them. Wanted to keep them. So after a year, we were like, okay, this is this is real. There's something happening with Radar. We're scaling. Uh, so she moved over, um, and and so she was there three years. I was there four years. Uh, we came back to Montreal in 2010.
1: So after your time at, at Shutterfly, after you're fully vested or whatever, you, you decided to come back to Montreal. You didn't want to stay in the Valley. So I actually left before I was fully
0: vested. Um, I was really struggling at Shutterfly. Uh, they call themselves a, sh- um, a startup, but you know it was with Factory about 500 people. Mm. They were doing you know 200 million dollars a year in revenue. Like it was a real real business. They're a public company.
1: It was it was the real deal. And so, and you didn't see yourself in that environment at the time no. or long term. It was
0: partly uh, the environment at Shutterfly that was very difficult. Partly, and by that I mean like what they wanted us to do with the product and all that. But it's also just my John, who was the CEO of Radar, my buddy and I. It it got it got difficult. Like he wanted to go one way, I wanted to go one way. I was like in the valley. Uh, had my first child there. He didn't know his parent, his grandparents, his aunts, his his uncles, his cousins, all that. And I'm like, it's just a combination of a lot of things that for me was like, I got I just, I need to leave here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not the least of which was just like the 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 vibe of the valley. Like today, it's it's even worse. But even back then, I felt it. It's like um, everyone thinks they're so great because they're they're building the next. Uh, Next startup and the it's next a, Facebook, yeah. yeah, the next this or the next that, and all people can talk about, you know, is like Google did this and Apple did that, and it's like it's it's really 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 intense, right? And it's just. Even back then, I was kind of like, okay, this is—it's a suffocating environment almost. Exactly. Even with my friends, it was like it's just—it was all about tech, 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 tech.
1: Right. So you knew you wanted to come back to Montreal at that point, or or you just happened to come back here because this is where you were originally. I was I was uh, looking to come back.
0: My wife was really really happy over there in in her role. Hmm. Um, And then I had made a promise to my wife originally when I left because it was very much a self-centered move, right? I'm like, I'm going to the valley to build a business and mm-hmm. it's just about me. And at the time when I when I did that, I told her, When we come back to Montreal, it'll be about I want it to be about you, right? It won't be I'm coming back for whatever. And so at the time where I was really sort of um not very happy in the Valley, she got a call from a company here in Montreal, uh, uh, from a friend and he was like, I have this job for you, would you be interested? And I was like, fuck, this is it's a great job. Like, it's a huge opportunity for you. And so, uh, obviously, she agreed. And so, she, she went through the motions and got the job. And that's when we moved back.
1: So, when when she... I mean, that's a perfect opportunity f- for you to make it about her and come back <laughs> for that reason. So, that she must have been happy about that. But did you have something lined up at that point? Or were you just like, okay, now I'm going to come back to Montreal and figure out my next step once I'm here? I had nothing.
0: And I... And so, my son was a year old at that time so uh, we can't and we came back in June so I decided we'd come back well we decided we'd come back but I would I would take care of my kid mm. um, so I spent the summer with him not too sure what I wanted to do I did a bit of consulting um, and eventually I met up with uh, Mark McLeod who was at the time a partner at real ventures mm. uh, and he introduced me to John Stokes and uh, they were they were pretty early in their fund, right? It was it was real venture right, one. Right. It was just the four partners, and in their plans, they wanted to launch an accelerator, um, and they were, they started talking to me about about doing that. And uh, it took a while for me to sort of wrap my head around it, but eventually, I thought this would be a great great idea, and uh, and I jumped in and and uh, started working on that. So uh, may, maybe I could say like. When I came back to Montreal, I was really worried about not being in a startup environment because when I left in 2006, there was almost nothing.
1: There's, yeah, Montreal right. was not a big startup space N- at that time. Not at all. And in 2010, how did that develop? It was still very, very minimal, but, but there was stuff happening, right? Like Real Ventures mm-hmm.
0: was around and guys like Sylvain Cal and Alex de Kroll and uh, Daniel de like there was, and Phil Tellio, like there was a, a group of, of individuals who were really starting to. Ramp things up and and you know get going and I kind of landed at the right right time in the beginning
1: in the early days right of that. in the early stages yeah what what do you think really builds a startup environment in in a, in a city especially at a time like that is it the emergence of venture funding in, in a city or kind of like a chicken and an egg thing or do startups have to start building scalable businesses here and then the venture funding comes second.
0: I, it's it's a combination of a lot of things. Like back in 2010, like if you went to McGill or Concordia or UCAM, any of those schools, any any of the uh, the engineering schools, like you went to school to go work for CGI or to go work for Bell or, or insert a big company, right? That was quote unquote success. Um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship was almost frowned upon, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, like, the, all these people that I just named and Gabriel Sundaram, and we spent a lot of time sort of educating uh, and, and sort of, you know, preaching that this type of thing is so much more rewarding than, than working for a big company.
1: To start your own project. To start your and, own thing, right? right?
0: And But but imagine you're going around saying, don't go work for Belcana for mm. $80,000 a year, mm. right? Go start your own thing for, no do- like for $10,000 a mm. year and work 80 hours a week, like people it just it wasn't a great message right. but things have changed dramatically right and i guess it
1: also helps with kind of the emergence of i guess in 2010 you had facebook that's yeah. really hitting their stride For uh, sure. you know instagram is starting to come around uh, all these other big companies in the valley were starting to really understand and that has an impact worldwide right what startups yeah. are i mean all, 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 about. all of
0: a sudden the entrepreneur was glorified right right and so everyone and that's that's also part of the problem too but like everyone thinks they can be Mark Zuckerberg which mm-hmm. is not the case right mm-hmm. there's one Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. but but that glorification definitely had an impact on that i think uh things like uh organizing the community so Notman House had a, had a big impact and that was that was the strategy around that right there was uh you know the guys at, at Osmo knew that there was all kinds of activities happening in the community but they needed one place to sort of Gather. centralize it for a while mm-hmm. to organize these things to make sure that things are are happening, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about just before coming on the, on the podcast, there was Next Montreal, but there was Montreal New Tech. But, you know, all these things were sort of all separated. And now they were starting to come together, be more organized. Right. And, you know, venture money has has a role in that. And exits have a role in that.
1: So it's it's more than just the two main elements of a of a startup city of having startups and having venture funding but it's about building a community essentially yeah. and yeah. building support for these startups. So when you're when you're coming up with this idea for the this accelerator as as a division of real ventures what what is that look what's the strategy behind that and how did you guys launch that?
0: Well, the the original strategy is, is you know, 100% um, the real ventures guys, right? They just, I happened to arrive at the right, right time. And, you know, when I came in, there was effectively just a name, right? They knew it was going to be called Fuel, They didn't know what it would look like. Um, but we knew that we were going to inspire ourselves from uh, the Techstars model and, and the YC model. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so literally, I remember I started like a... First week of May, uh, first week of June, I had, well, we had assembled about 75 mentors. I'd built the website. I, I built sort of the framework of all of it in the month. And we were up on TechCrunch saying, hey, there's this new Accelerator called founder, if you mm-hmm. So it went very, very fast, uh, started recruiting. And the first cohort was, uh, was really, really, really hard because we had no playbook, mm. we just made everything up along the way. And I was doing it alone, right? Um, you know, obviously, the the real ventures guys played a a big, big role in mentors of the, of the program, right? And sort of forging the companies and working with the companies. But in terms of like organizing the the program and the structure and what we're doing, that was essentially done alone. And uh, it was like one of the most brutal, painful things I've ever done. Like after really? one cohort, I was like, Wah.
1: more uh, than raising thirteen million dollars in the valley. Yeah, yeah, because
0: it's it's really, it was, nothing was built, and um, so first of all, I coming out of that, I said, I got to get some help, I can't do this alone, mm-hmm. and so I, I raised sponsorship money to go get an intern, so I can have someone to help me out, mm-hmm. but like today, the guys are doing one cohort a year, we were doing two cohorts a year, right and we were doing it two people, and today they're doing one cohort a year, and there's four or five people working there. Right. Right, so it's like hard but more support more. yeah it's really really it's very very intense and part of the problem with when you're doing two cohorts is like as soon as one cohort's done, you start recruiting the next mm-hmm. so
1: you ha- you never have a break. So how much time did you spend building founder fuel initially getting that off the ground? Oh it was full time but uh, so how much time did you spend there at, at founder fuel? Oh, how, how long you... was I there? I was right. there for uh, about three
0: and a half years. And in that three and a half years, did about fifty companies. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and through the founder fuel um, experience, I reconnected, reconnected with uh, Daniel Rubichaud, uh, who I realized I had met when I was eighteen, but we sort of lost Kept connection. And he was uh, he was launching Forever Alive, uh, which eventually uh, pivoted into Password Box. And uh, he had a really solid team, and when they announced their A round, um, started talking to them about potentially joining uh, because I was I was, you know, itching to get back into building my own business. Right? Just, it's right. I was you know, going to ask
1: if during this founder fuel time you must be like well, thinking about getting back in. Yeah,
0: because you're helping other entrepreneurs build their business. You're kind of living vicariously through them. But I was like, I don't want to build a program. I want to build a company. You don't and want to be the coach on the sideline. You want no, to be in the starting five. Exactly. So I so eventually joined uh, Password Box. That was in 2014. And uh, about a year after, we got acquired by Intel. Uh, so that was you know, quite an experience. Good timing. Uh, yeah, great timing. Uh, it was a great exit. Uh, everyone got treated very, very well. And through that experience, eventually I, I became the general manager of, of the entire unit. At Intel now, yeah. At Intel, so at this point, I was managing almost a hundred people. I never had a team of that size, so that was a a, a huge learning experience, mm-hmm. uh, and and it was kind of like a a bit like my nomad thing, like a very well funded startup in a large organization. Right. We had the benefit of being in Montreal when head office was, you know, West Coast in, in the U.S. Uh, had full control pretty much. And so that was a very good, really, really good experience.
1: Because that, that experience, it sounds similar to what happened with Radar and, and Shutterfly. I mean, you get acquired by a much bigger company and you get placed into this role in that becomes more of a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. It sounds like something similar happened here between Passwordbox and Intel, but you're saying that this was much more something that you were interested in and, and it was a better fit for you at yeah, that
0: time. Yeah, much, much better fit, much more positive outcome. It wasn't forced as it was like in the valley because mm-hmm. the valley was it was, you know, forced by the economy and stuff like that. This was a decision that was uh, that 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 Dan made because it made sense to join Intel. Like there was a good continuity of vision and all that, so it was much more positive. So, how much time did you spend there at Intel? So we, uh, I was there about three years as well. I have this thing about three years. <laughs> um, so a bit of a A bit of a story around this uh, but it's worth saying i think through uh, we we actually got acquired through uh, into intel by the mcafee group so intel was owner 100 of mcafee and eventually intel resold mcafee while we were there and mcafee was acquired by a private equity firm and for the first six months it was pretty legit like nothing really happened but you know, a private equity firm is going to make some moves. And eventually they said that, that they were shutting down offices globally and all kinds of places and sort of just bringing people uh, into certain areas and dismissing certain products and all kinds of stuff. So we i got a I got a call one morning from a from the EVP from my boss, and he says, uh, ian, we're we're shutting down the Montreal office. Wow, just like that, just like that. And, and uh, I, I was really shocked because I wasn't expecting it at all. Uh, I got sick because I'm like, oh, I have these, you know, 85, 90 people that are depending on me for for a job. So I got shingles. I don't know if you know what shingles is, but it's brutally painful. Not right. um, and uh, and then I announced it to my my immediate uh, reports, like my management team. And uh, I was just, I was devastated because because of the impact this was going to have on, on the team. I wasn't worried about like the management team. I was worried about the rest of the team. So, but
1: if if Intel's kind well, they didn't spin off, but they they kind of sold that that division, the yeah. McAfee group. How did they have a an impact on what happens? Because because Password Box was still property of Intel, or did it then no, no, it no. was still under McAfee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's how they're. So we got acquired to McAfee. So right.
0: originally our emails were at
1: McAfee.com. Right. Then it went to at
0: Intel.com, hmm. and then went back to at McAfee
1: so they were shutting down the office and letting, yeah. cutting the the staff as well. Yeah. They were
0: gonna stop investing in, in in our product. They were gonna send like maintenance to
1: India and part of it in Waterloo, but they would not be investing in that product anymore. Right. That so that that's I, like you said. I mean, that's a really tough blow to digest, yeah. right? For yeah. for so many different reasons. Yeah. Um. How much time did you kind of spend dealing with that? That experience? so. Uh, I got, I cured pretty quick in terms of my personal right. sickness.
0: Um, but then when I announced it to the, to the team, I told the team, uh, I made three promises that uh, I told them that I had no idea this was coming, right? Like there are scenarios where you the, could see the GM coming. actually knows, right? right? Or, or, or they literally know I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I found out one day, the next day I told the team. So I, uh, my promise was um, I knew nothing. Uh, my second promise was I was going to do whatever I could to help them find work. And the third thing I would do is throw a massive party to celebrate uh, the success of the all journey. All the accomplishments. Right? Right. Um, And so uh, what we did from there is um, I called up all my friends in the community, all my CEO friends, and I said, I got 80 people. They're out of a job in October. We had like three months, and I'm like, uh, I'm going to organize... Uh, like uh, show-and-tells and And you can come into the office at lunch talk about what you're doing who you're looking for blah 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 and hopefully you can find some good people and and, you know these people find some work like a job fair yeah pretty Mm -hmm. much so we did uh, so Dan and I who also knows a lot of people we we started calling all our friends and between the day I announced it and the day we we closed the door there was one person who didn't have a job Wow we did. We brought in about forty companies in that period to wow. to, to the lunch. A diagram hired a bunch of them. Dialogue hired a bunch of them. Uh, all kinds of people hired. And I, so I
1: I just want to point out at this point because it sounds like in in every business that that you're involved with or that you 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 start or you're managing your your drive is much more than just an exit. It, it always sounds like your your staff and your employees are a big part of of the business that you're building and making sure they're taken care of yeah how important is that to you, really? I mean, it's
0: the only thing that's important. Mm-hmm. I think that the goal is to create value to create a great uh, environment where people can can flourish and have fun and and by having fun, I mean, I don't mean like having ping pong tables and foosball tables or having a dog in the office or going out drinking. I mean, come in, want to be at work, want to do things that that they're meaningful. They're enjoying mm-hmm. and that's meaningful. And that ultimately, the company is going towards a vision of that is creating positive impact uh, in people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about, right? And if that means raising capital along the way, so be it. If it means an exit, great for the investors. But th- but that is not. That's just the cherry on top. Yeah.
1: Hey guys, just a quick word from one of our sponsors, Breather, that helps make this podcast possible. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. To learn more, visit Breather.com. This episode is also brought to you by KBD Insurance. KBD Insurance is a Montreal-based insurance broker specializing in commercial, car, and home insurance. We can all agree that insurance is more complicated than it needs to be, which is why KBD's team of over 30 brokers aims to simplify the insurance process for their clients. Check them out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or visit them at kbdinsurance.com. Life is chaotic. Insurance doesn't have to be. So at this point, you're staring down another kind of transitionary point in, yep. in your career, right? Yep. The password box is winding down. You're hosting this job fair for for your employees. Are you at the same time looking for what kind of jobs yeah. are out there for yourself? Or are you thinking, I'm going to start a new venture?
0: Well, again, so not to be on the same drum, but my my, is that the expression?
1: yeah beat on the same drum something like that
0: yeah (laughs) my main focus at at this point is finding work for the team but i am i am thinking about what i'm going to do i don't Mm -hmm. know yet Mm -hmm. but at this point I, i i eventually narrow it down to to three things that i that i know that i want uh the first one is i know i want to launch something new so that's decided i mean i spoke to a lot of people like shopify and I mean, if you're if you're in the if you're in the market for work right now and you don't talk to someone like Shopify or there's a few companies just, or Element, you just you gotta talk to them to see what's up. To the up, big guys, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like, they're great companies, but I'm not gonna be happy there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so I knew I wanted to launch something new. I knew that uh, I wanted the timing to be right. You know, like the the radar thing again. Not to dwell on that. Perfect idea, perfect vision, wrong time. I and I, I knew that I wanted to build something that, as crazy as it may sound, there was actual payment of something from the get go.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like Pastor Box was a you know great success story, but you know when you when you think of of a freemium pro- product generating real revenue from a freemium product is very very difficult, mm-hmm. right? It's if you're if you're really good, you have five percent of your user base that's paying. If you're paying twenty dollars uh, a year you got to have a lot of fucking users for this to make financial sense, right? So I didn't want anything like that. I wanted a f- transaction. And the, and the most important thing is I wanted something that would have an impact um, on people's lives, a positive impact. And um, one thing I know about myself is I'm I'm rarely the uh, the original idea guy, right? So Radar was not my idea. Founderfield was not my idea, but I'm an executor. Mm-hmm. Right? I execute on things. And so uh, around that time... François Lafortune, who's a founder of, of Diagram, and Dan Rebchaud, who's the managing partner of, of Diagram at this time, they came up to me and they said, we have this idea uh, around selling life insurance online. We think you'd be a great potential CEO for this. Uh, let's talk. I said, OK, started talking. And at first I was like,
1: ah, life insurance, blah. like, you, you, everything that you saw your dad do growing yeah. up started coming back to you. Yeah, I'm like, fuck,
0: I don't want to do that. But I did my my work, my due diligence, and I'm like, this is checking off all the boxes, right? It, it, the timing is right because the industry hasn't changed in 100 years. Uh, there's a payment. like There are people paying you. They're paying like for 20
1: years. The business model is clear.
0: Yeah, business model is clear, and it has a positive impact, right? Like, you know, If I were to, to, to get hit by a bus tomorrow my life insurance will take care of my kids and my wife, right? It has a really positive impact. Mm-hmm. So I jumped in. I said, I got to do this. Let's do it. And so that's how, that's how
1: that started. So, so when they come to you at this point and they say, hey, Ian, we got this great idea for this, this life insurance company, are they coming to you with, with anything already in place, a, a pitch deck, a team, um, a, a website, or are they just coming to you with an idea and say, okay, take it from here?
0: So the way Diagram works is they, they have a team, innovation team, right? And this team, their job is to look at the fintech, insurtech, tech, health tech spaces and find opportunities and ideas uh, in those spaces. And when they have an idea, they, they'll start you know, exploring it and iterating on it and doing some tests and sometimes actually build code, like that type of stuff. Just some
1: market research uh, gather. Okay. Yeah.
0: So when they came to me in this case, you know, they had, they had launched like a really, really basic MVP. Uh, They had done a bit of marketing campaigns. They started dabbling and just testing things out. And so I was exposed to all that. Mm. Um, But that's all done by the internal and the internal team. And so when I came on, um, basically had like, we agreed on, on certain milestones that I, I needed to achieve in order to officially sort of do this. And it was a good sort of uh, dating phase, right? So I can start working, they can right. get to know me and all that. Uh, so I hit those milestones. And one of those milestones was uh, creating the fi- the founding team. OK. And so uh, I, the first guy I brought on is a guy called Jean-Nicolas uh, jean claude sorry. There's mm-hmm. a lot of Jean-Nicolas in my life. <laughs> Jean-Nicolas Hould, who, who you met uh, at the event a yeah. few weeks ago. Yeah. And he was at Password Box. Okay. Uh, one of the early employees. And I remember when I met him the first time, I was like, oh, shit. One day I'm going to I'm going to launch him. something with this guy. Uh, and then the second guy that came on board was Sébastien Malherbe, who was also at password box. Uh, he was he's a product guy. And so the three of us had been working together for many years already. And I was looking for a CTO and I spoke to all kinds of people in the community, like literally. If there's a if there's a developer in this town that didn't hear from me because I was looking for a CTO, <laughs> yeah. I missed them. But uh, and eventually, so um, I, I was introduced to uh, Arash Chupani, um, and it, he he had spent the last eight years in New York. Uh, he was very well known in, in the community from the early days because you know he had left for for so long, and it just clicked. It, it really really clicked. And it's not easy for someone coming into a group of three guys that have been working together for four years right it could have been difficult but it was super super smooth uh you know and so the four of us got started on breathe life um in january 2018
1: so what is the the kind of conditions of the uh, of the relationship with diagram at this point they they present you this idea now presumably there's something that goes back to them how does that relationship work
0: well as part of that initial uh ideation phase and, and that type of stuff they have they they keep a portion of the equity, okay. right? So the majority of the equity goes to the founding team, but they keep part of it, and then um, in exchange, they've 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 put time, they've put money, they've, they've put, put resources. some startup yeah. capital as well. Yeah, so okay. they put some stuff in there. Uh, but at, so at this point, you know, it's the four of us, and you know, we work very closely with with the Diagram team, uh, and Diagram offers a suite of different services for like they have a team of of recruit recruiters. They have a finance team, so things that you know I I I would usually do like payroll and all those stuff, I don't need to, to worry about. It's all done by a CFO who works with with Diagram. And you could focus on building the business. Yeah, focus on other stuff, right? right? Focus on just getting some traction and whatnot.
1: So tell us what is Breathe Life yep. at this point. What's the product you guys are building? So what is it today or what is what was it at the time? Because we did, we did
0: a pretty significant pivot. Mm-hmm. At the time, the idea was to sell life insurance online directly to consumers uh, to become effectively the the brand, the life insurance brand, right? the modern life insurance brand, kind of like what uh, Lemonade is doing in, in the property and casualty space, if, if you know of Lemonade. And so we started working on that. Uh, we, we built out our brand, and uh, that requires significant work just from a like licensing perspective you got to find a, an insurance carrier to to actually provide the insurance product and as we're going through all these things uh, we eventually met up with National Bank uh, National bank insurance and they were like we really like you guys we really like what you're trying to do we've been dabbling with something similar on our end internally uh, we'd love you to build our our engine to do this online, but it needs to be a white label solution. And so, at first, I was not very excited about that because, oftentimes, well, in in the consumer or the direct to consumer world, uh, white labeling is often like the kiss of death. It's the thing you do at the very la- at the very last moment. Um, and I've always been a direct uh, like a, a B to C guy. Right. But because they had the license, they would be paying it paying us to do this they'd be paying the marketing dollars We're like we could learn a ton on someone else's dollar so let's do it
1: now just sorry just to cut you off when you when you say build the engine the white labeled version of that yep. that's their that's the, the what's visible on their site for yep. capturing quotes capturing quotes and selling directly online and selling directly yep. online as well without any phone conversations or insurance brokers exactly, or, exactly right
0: so and maybe that's important to put into context but like the way life insurance is sold today is 99% of the time, sitting in front of an advisor at your house, not the kitchen table, uh, hours and hours of discussing and, and and figuring out what you want to buy. And then a nurse comes two weeks later, puts a needle in your arm and makes you pee in the pot. And then you wait another three weeks, four weeks before you get an answer. Like the whole process on average will take three months. Right, so and that's it's how to fund today. Right? right? That's how it's done today. And we're like, that sucks. It's not the way consumers want to buy today. We need to change this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And National Bank had that vision as well. So we launched this thing for them, and then it went really, really, really well. <laughs> it was like, whoa. A good fit. Something good is happening here. Right. So all this to say is that at that point, we, we took a step back. We went to talk to another insurance carrier and said, you know, we built this thing. Would you be interested in buying this thing? And they said yes. And we're like, oh, there's, there's something here. With the same agreement, white labeled version yeah. of it. Right? Yeah. So somewhere last year, around October, we officially made the pivot, which is, you know, we dropped everything that was B2C. We're now focused 100 percent on B2B. And essentially Breathe Life um, is like our vision is is to ensure financial security for people, whoever and wherever they are. And we do that through a SaaS platform that is white white-labeled that enables insurance carriers and distributors to sell life products online.
1: This is not the first time you've gone through a pivot in, in your company. It's, again, very a lot of drawbacks uh, from what you went through at Radar. What else is involved when a company goes through a pivot like that? I mean, other than changing your marketing communications on on the front end of your, of your website and, and of the company, internally, what happens during a pivot in, in a company? I
0: mean, all kinds of things,
1: right? Like, uh, do you have to cut a lot of staff and rehire, or do you try to
0: find new roles? Well, we didn't. We didn't fire anyone. Uh, You know, there's one person, um, Emma Williams, who was the first pro, uh, second program manager at Founder Fuel. So we we go way back. Her role changed a bit. She's in, in marketing, so marketing B to C is very different from marketing marketing B to B, right? So she's the one person in the company whose role changed Mm -hmm. it's still marketing but as you know marketing to a c-level executive at an insurance carrier in the u.s is very different from marketing to a 25 year old who just bought a house and needs life insurance Mm -hmm. so she was most impacted but the truth is like when you're going through especially this type of pivot where essentially what it is is that the market pulled us in that direction right that's it wasn't like the radar thing where we're like, we gotta we gotta find a solution to, to be to exit this thing. It was it was clear, right? Like the market was pulling us there. There's real money to be made. Uh we are much better at doing this type of thing than any insurance carrier could do it on their own. And so when that happens, you know,
1: the team rallies behind it, right? Because it's clear. It's like Makes sense. It's, yeah, and it, it needs to be made. Yeah. So, and and essentially, I mean, the product side didn't really change. It's more of the distribution of that product. Right? Well,
0: the product. No, the product does change, right? Uh, you know, Seb, who is a also a a B two C guy, was was a bit less excited about doing B two B because he was like, you know, I don't want to be at the mercy of the clients that we're serving. But at this, at the end of the day, it's our platform, right? And the carriers are buying access. To the platform, right? We're not building it for each one of them individually. It's a SaaS platform. So once you sort of realize and understand that, you know, it makes sense. You right? still have your creative yeah.
1: control and things
0: like Absolutely.
1: that. Absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned this engine that that's replacing a, an old way of of selling and and getting life insurance. How do you get around the what you mentioned before about having to have a nurse come visit you and and Stick a needle in your arm and do a bunch of tests. How do you get around that by doing that all online?
0: Yeah, so I think so just to give a bit of history, the you know the the way it's been sold has not changed in a hundred years, and the the reality is that depending on the type of product, insurance product that you're selling, sometimes that type of thing, like the needle and the arm and all that is still required. right? Mm-hmm. if you're if you're selling something that is very complex, uh, to to a complex individual who's who's in his fifties, who has you know significant revenues and money, whatever, it's very very different than selling uh, to a a younger individual who's who's going through f- their first uh, life stages, uh, which are the reasons that you would buy insurance. Right, there's yeah. some corners you just can't cut, like yeah. that, that are that you need to keep in place. Exactly, but if you're if you're selling a product to a twenty or thirty year old, the chances of that person being uh unhealthy is slim and the chances of that person needing a very complex financial plan is nil right so for those types of individuals you can sell without uh without buying without having the full uh urine test and all those things right that's where sort of the industry is going they're realizing it's overkill for no reason but if you're selling to someone who's 45 years old or 50 years old then you kind of want to have a a medical exam to make sure that person's healthy
1: but the na- the nature of this product and the buying process caters more to younger individuals yep. which is why it's it's a lot it's an easier process with them
0: yeah and the reason it caters to that to that group of, of individuals is because because the compensation model hasn't changed in, in a very long time either for the advisors uh, but cost of living keeps on going higher the advisors not incentivized to sell to that younger generation because by the time they meet the person they go to their house and they have the kitchen table discussion and all that and they sell the policy and they make 300 bucks they lost money Mm. right so the advisors are like i'm not going to talk to these guys because they're not buying expensive products i'm going to focus on the higher net worth individuals because they're buying products that i'm going to make money with right right so that creates a giant gap in in, in the ecosystem or in the planet which is all these younger younger generations, let's call them the millennials for for the argument, but all these millennials who are having children, who are buying houses, or who are doing things that require life insurance, are not buying it because no one's talking to them. And so what that does is, you know, if there's something bad that happens in the family where you know one of the two parents dies, and there's no life insurance, then that
1: child will likely have a very bad future. Right. 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 Does, do you see this expand beyond just life insurance and other forms of insurance as well?
0: Per, per, perhaps. I mean, th- just within life insurance, there are many different types of products. right? So there's term products, there's whole life products, there's uh, critical illness, disability. There's all kinds of different products that, that can be sold. Uh, one of our clients uh, has asked us to do travel, so we are doing travel now. Um, I think that that one will probably be recurring, but... At the end of the day, we're really focused on securing at the individual level, mm-hmm. right? About the individual
1: person. So, yeah. right. so Not like, material things, right? Yeah. Things so like
0: cars that. and houses, like that's less. Interesting.
1: That's less important. Yeah. We we talked a lot about again your the the value you place on on your employees, your staff. What tell us about the company culture here at, at Breed Life? Yeah. What's what do you guys focus on? What's important to you here? So one thing
0: that that's very important to me is like I've done the 80 hour week thing. And I've done that sort of like, go, 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 go. And I don't think that it, that it, that it's the right approach. I think you just get tired and, and like this whole story, like the Jack Ma thing with working nine, nine, six, like, give me a break. I'm actually doing a full talk on that at startup fest this summer. So one of the, the first things that, that, um, that I thought was important was to create like a work life balance, uh, you know, we don't want to work 80 hours a week. We will work 88 hours a week if we have a deadline that we've all agreed we need to hit. But that needs to be the exception and not not the norm. We uh, we very early on set or yeah set our, our company values. Uh, I don't know if you you saw, but we wrote about them publicly. We so we said how do we? The last thing I wanted to do is just put values out and not adhere to them. So we were like, how do we make sure that if we say we want to be human and if we say we want to be trusting and proactive, um, you know, if we say that that's who we are, how do we make sure that we we're accountable for it? And one morning I woke up, I'm like, shit, let's let's publicly write about it. So we, we posted a blog post about it. Um, we actually, we framed our, uh, our annual review—it's not—it's not a big process, but the 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 review process is built around the values. And so there's a peer review about you know does person X adhere to these five values? Uh, there's a self review and there's the manager review. It's all around the values. So we're like, what better way to evaluate people if than just saying that are they being the things that we want them to be? So we that that's on the value side. Um, we have, you know, very early on we hired an HR manager, which is pretty rare for this stage. We're 26 people. We've had an HR manager for a while. Uh, our office manager is also a manager of culture. And so, you know, just yesterday or every, week, every Wednesday there's a personal trainer that, that comes to the office. Uh, next week they're going, um, they're doing uh, spinning. Um, you know, we, all, this, all the snacks in the office are all healthy. Uh, we do healthy lunches. Like we're really trying to create a good work environment, and uh, I think it's just a. Uh, I think it's coming a lot from you know where I've been and the things that I've seen like right.
1: your experiences. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, where where's your office now? I think uh, you mentioned before you're changing offices as well.
0: Yeah. So we, as of now, uh, we're we're still in the we're renting space out of the Diagram office, uh, right in uh, Square Victoria. And we're moving into our new office um, on uh, in July, which is on Queen Street uh, near uh, Wellington. And so that'll be, we've we've already had our own personal office, but we were eight people. Uh, now we're 26 people, so we're moving into a new office that can help, have up to 40 people. A lot more space. A lot more space and uh, <laughs> our own meeting rooms. It's hmm. challenging to, to have uh, shared meeting rooms, but
1: that's coming up you've been both in in Silicon Valley and and experienced the the whole startup culture and world there, and you've done it here as well. How important is it for a, a founder to to have a presence in Silicon Valley if any if you place any importance on that?
0: I don't know, I think I think that's changed quite a bit, right? Like I we haven't done much to um, attract investors, right? We've been doing our thing. We've, we do have a PR agency in the US, but they're strictly focused on press, uh, sorry, industry press, right? So not focused on anything that would necessarily get investors excited, mm-hmm. but I get inbound from investors in the US all the time. It's crazy. And so my point, I think, is um, it's changed a lot. Uh, I think that uh, if you are in fundraising mode, it makes sense to to do the rounds but like the valley is not uh, you know it's everyone talks about it as the holy grail but for having been there four years it's like it's true there's more capital but it's also true that there's more people fighting for the same capital mm. and it's true that your engineers as soon as they they have a doubt that this is not a company that's going to exit for two billion dollars like like looker did today you know they're going to leave you and like the, the problems we face here are the same problems they face in the Valley, they're just accelerating. they're just bigger, mm-hmm. right? And and I'm not saying, oh, you should build a startup here, that, that's not what I'm saying, but like, wherever you go, you will have the same problems of recruiting, of fundraising, it's the same everywhere. And so oftentimes I, I hear founders, oh, if only we're in the Valley, I'm like, no, like, that's not the way it works, right? It's uh, not a must. No. Right.
1: Uh, speaking of investing, you guys closed the $4.5 million round in, in February. Are you guys still in fundraising mode, or is is that on hold for now? So for now, we're we're heads down, uh, trying to get as much traction
0: as we can. Um, we're we're very much focused on the U.S. market. Uh, we have already three partners in Canada, um, and these these partners are big institutions, so they're they're hard to close. They can take four or five months, six months. Uh, of sales process, so we have got uh, four in Canada now. We're wrapping up our first one in the U.S. Uh, as we speak, um, but that's where the big focus is. And our our plan right now is to continuing um, continuing to build until uh, sometime in early January. And in January, then we'll you know formally start a a more uh, another round of another funding. round of funding, and we we plan to close in the first half
1: of next year. Right. Um, I have to ask in in this kind of rich career of yours, there is a a point in there where you launched something called Montreal in Tech. What tell us about that? What's that all about?
0: Yes, yeah, so Montreal in Tech um, was launched to be the the voice of Montreal. Effectively, you know, it, one of the things that that was a um, that fueled my desire to do Founder Fuel or to, to, to launch Founder Fuel was to help put Montreal on the map, right? Like I'm, I've left Montreal twice, and this is where I want to live. I really, really love our our city or our culture, and and that was one of the drivers behind Founder Fuel, and it was clearly the driver behind Montreal in tech. Effectively, what happened was, you know, there was. Way back, there was Next Montreal, which was a blog about uh, Montreal that was uh, run by Ben Yoskowitz. He left for Halifax. The blog died. Harry uh, was doing uh, Montreal um, New Tech. That died when he left. Uh, and then Beta Kit, who was just restarting, hired Joey Zick. He was out of Montreal. And then all of a sudden, Montreal had a voice again, and a, a big voice uh, at, at that time at uh, Runch was in Toronto, so they were getting a lot of press, and there was Tech Vibes out of Vancouver. They were getting, pro- promoting a lot of, of Vancouver. But then Joey left uh, BetaKit, and all of a sudden there was nothing. And so Gabriel Sunderam and I said, there's a ton of stuff happening in Montreal. We need to tell the story. Let's launch a new blog. That's when we launched Montreal in Tech. Uh, it's been around now ever since. And and the, the the goal here is really to make sure that the stories uh, of of the startup stories of Montreal are being told and heard because uh, as Gabriel always says, like if if you have an event one night and there's nobody taking pictures and tweeting them or sharing them on Facebook or or on radar, (laughs) uh, the event doesn't exist. It's like it never happened. Mm -hmm. And so we knew all these things were happening. It was like, we need to tell the story. And that was, that's essentially the goal to make sure that people across Canada in the U S People know that there's stuff happening in, in Montreal.
1: And, and I want to reiterate that. I mean, you Montreal in Tech is a non-profit, yep. from my understanding. It's really all about putting Montreal on the map from a, a technology standpoint. Yep, exactly. If I were to come back five years from now and tell you Breed Life is a massive success, it's accomplished everything you hoped and dreamed it would, if it's in five years, what does that future look like to you? I think... The, the goal here five years from now is to
0: have um, a global company uh, that is headquartered in Montreal um, that is um, you know live, live uh, everywhere in North America and in Asia, Europe, and, and where people really want to work and people uh, strive. You know, I, I, I look a lot to what Shopify has done. Right, everyone who works at Shopify loves working at Shopify. They have, um, you know, I, I haven't worked there, but you know, from what I hear, great work life culture, um, everyone knows them. Like that to me is, is really an inspiration. And when you look at what they did for online stores, uh, I like to say there's a lot of comparison as to what we're trying to do for the for insurance world, right? If, if an insurance company wants to sell online, they should be, the default uh, choice should be Breathe Life. And that, that's really the inspiration.
1: Ian Jeffrey, co-founder and CEO of Breathe Life. To listen to more stories from local startup founders, visit montrealstartups.ca slash podcast. Available on all your streaming platforms. If you have questions or comments about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at montrealstartups.ca.